Glad you're here. Welcome to our online audience. I'm glad you're streaming with us this morning. Um, ladies, uh, a detail in your bulletin this morning is there's a, a note in there that reminds you that the women's Christmas event is coming up and the tickets are being sold this morning. So after the service, there'll be a table out in the atrium and you can get your tickets in advance. You can also get them next week if you're not prepared to do that today. I'm going to ask you to go to Romans chapter 8, if you would, and join me there. But also, if you don't mind, if you have your Bible with you, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe it's on your phone or on your iPad or you've got a hard copy in front of you or grab one of those out of the rack so you can follow along, but it'll also be up on the screen. I'm going to take you into Ephesians 1 first because Ephesians has an anchor verse that helps support what we're talking about this morning in Romans chapter 8. We'll start off there. Ephesians 1 and verse 13 says this. In him, you also, he's talking to the church here, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him. If you're a believer, you were sealed in the Holy Spirit, it says. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory." If you believe that you were sealed in the Holy Spirit this morning, say amen. amen. Okay, if you're a believer in Jesus, God has made a commitment to you. He says that you're sealed, that means you're protected with a view towards an inheritance, meaning something is waiting for you. So I want to talk about the Holy Spirit's activity in your life this morning and that inheritance. And we're going to do this, it's kind of a part A, part B is next week when we talk about the things that we actually get. But what we understand from what this is saying is there's something that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit has done at the moment that you confessed belief in Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is familiar. If you've grown up in church, you've been in church for any length of time in your life, you understand some of this, but we never want to treat this lightly. Here's why. You need to be able to answer confidently to the people that you work with to the people that you do life with and the neighborhoods that you live in, where you go to school at. Why am I a Christian? Why have I aligned myself with Jesus Christ? Because if you have confidence in that and you understand who you are in Jesus, you also understand that you do have an inheritance. Something is waiting for you. But Scripture also warns us that there's suffering involved. And those are the three components of what we have to talk about this morning as we go into Romans chapter 8. So because this is both encouraging and hard at the same time, we need God to guide us in this. I'm going to ask you to pray with me about this very thing, that he would open up our minds. Join me in that. Father, we've just declared in song that your word is alive and that it's active and it, it does things. And where necessary, God, you can do heart surgery with your word. You can work on us and sometimes even cause us to bleed. I pray that you would be so active this morning that we would be in response to your Holy Spirit, willing to hear what you have to say, and that we would respond, that we wouldn't just leave here unchanged, Father, but rather because of encountering you. That's why we're here. We want to encounter you, and because we're doing that through your word, God, that you would communicate to us, you would move us to do things on behalf of your kingdom. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, stay with Ephesians 1 for a moment, but just keep a finger there, maybe a bookmark, and translate over to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, where we left off last time, was in verse 13 and 14, and here we go back into verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, 
These are the sons of God, and you should be noticing right away that having the Holy Spirit in your life is not extra equipment. It's not like an option on your car when you buy a new car. There's nothing optional here. The Bible allows for zero exemptions. There's there's no one that is a believer in Jesus that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. So he goes out of his way to say, those who are destined for heaven, those who are the children of God, those who belong, they are described as being led by the Spirit. Don't don't you find it interesting that Paul has to keep reminding church people of what it looks like to know that you're really a child of God? He has to keep coming back to that in Romans 8 to help them know if they truly belong. Here's why. I'm, I'm sure of it because I've experienced the exact same thing. Over the course of my years in ministry, individuals that I talk with, the most common question I get from individuals is this, how do I know that I'm really saved? How do I know that I'm actually destined for heaven and not doomed to hell? And maybe you're struggling with that this morning. Maybe you're wondering, how do I know for sure? That is a very common issue, and it seems to be a consistent issue in the first century. And you find Paul coming back to it time and time again. Why? Because human nature has not changed. We want assurance internally because we know that we're not good enough on our own to get there. We know that we can't do it. We know that we can't achieve approval from God on our own, so we want assurance. So we have these questions like, can it really be true? Because I'm like so messed up. I've got things wrong with me. How do I know for sure? Well, occasionally throughout a typical year here at New Hope, I give you measuring rods, and I did that a few weeks ago. I'm going to do that again this morning, ways in which you can check yourself. No one else can check you on this. You can only check yourself on this to see if what you read in the Bible is actually true of you. And you can say, yep, that's me. Why? So you can answer confidently. When somebody asks you, why do you believe? Why do you have that hope? You can answer and you can respond. So what you find Paul doing in verse 14 through 17 is he begins building confidence in the lives of individuals who are reading this to know that they belong to Jesus before he breaks into the great part of finishing chapter 8. So he begins chapter 8 with a bang, and he starts off by saying, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he ends with a bang saying, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor principalities nor powers will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But in between, he has to come back time and time again to keep saying to the church, this is who you are. If you can point to this, this is true of you. So in verse 14, he states fact. If you pulled your notes out of your bulletin this morning, you see two major ways in which the Spirit leads us. You see one of them on the screen right now. The way that the Holy Spirit leads us. The first thing is we need to understand that being led by God's Spirit is the hallmark of true relationship. So number one, the major way that he leads us is he leads us like a shepherd. He leads us as a protector. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd protects the sheep that belong to him. Well, we're told that the Holy Spirit has sealed you. We looked at that in Ephesians 1 this morning. Look with me one more time at just a portion of it on the screen. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge. A pledge of what? Of your inheritance, that thing that's waiting for you. So the Holy Spirit, picture him like your spiritual bodyguard, The Holy Spirit has your back. 
He's the one that God gave to you to say, this is true of you. You are my child. You do belong to me. Now, that's not to say that a child of God is always going to feel secure. Because like Michael talked about at the piano a few moments ago, sometimes we hit that place where we feel like, man, God feels so distant right now. He's like, the heavens are brass. I'm not hearing from him. My experience is that comes from one of two things. Sometimes it's from a neglect of God's word, a neglect of prayer, a neglect of obedience, a neglect of fellowship. And if that's true in your life, you're going to have doubts because you're indifferent to the things of God. That's one of the reasons, but there's another reason. In times of pain and in times of failure and in times of disappointment, even an obedient child of God is going to doubt the relationship. They're going to doubt the reality of it and can easily slip into a questioning mode. And what happens during that time is Satan takes advantage of those moments. And he begins planting seeds of doubt. Yeah, he doesn't really love you that much. He doesn't really care. Why is he letting you go through these times if he really cared for you? And it's in those moments when you need to draw the sword of the Spirit that we talked about two years ago or two weeks ago. When we talked about the fact that God says, no, you are my child. I have pledged to you. I've given my Holy Spirit to promise you, you are in line for heaven. Now, that's the one major way that he leads us. He leads us like a shepherd. He protects us and guards us. But the second major way is through context. Um, When I was in Bible college, my professor said to me, Mark, keep the text in context. In other words, don't just pull out verses randomly, but keep it in context of everything that's being said. So if we're going to keep it in context, Paul's been talking about something specific here. In context of verses 2 through 13, he's been talking about dealing with the sin nature. And he says when he gets to verse 14, you know you belong if you're being led by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit to do what? In the midst of it, he says, being led by the Spirit, that's a hallmark that you belong to God. And a measurable outcome of that is the reality of your conduct. In other words, if you're actually a child of God, you're in the family, so act like it. Act like a child of God. That's why Galatians 5, you see this on the screen, says this, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. See, the two are opposing each other. They can't coexist. They fight against each other. So here's what the second major way looks like of the Spirit leading you. The Spirit leads you into sanctification. And if you're going to keep the text in context, that's what Paul's talking about here. That we're led to put to death the sin nature. And what he does in the remaining three verses is he just fleshes it out. He shows us what it looks like. These are not a series of disconnected statements. They're all related together. So verse 15, let's go there. This is related to verse 14. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now Paul's talking here about what sin does to us. It messes with us, and it takes us to this place of fear. It produces fear. Slavery leads to sin, and it leads to this thing of distress. So Paul uses a really deliberate word here. When he uses the word fear, he uses the word phobos. And if you're familiar with the English language, you know the word phobia. 
Um, arachnophobia, somebody who's got a fear of spiders, right? There's phobias that we have. It comes from this word phobos. And phobos means exceedingly in terror. Well, Paul deliberately uses this here because he says, sin, it's going to take you there every time. But you, if you're a child of God, you're not a slave to that thing. You're not a slave to fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, the Father, God the Father, has not given us a spirit of fear, not of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So check this. The spirit who leads you, if you're a child of God, is not going to take you back to the very thing you were rescued from. He's delivering you from that. So Paul uses a great contrast. He uses the metaphor of adoption. In contrast to going to fear, he says, you're safe. You're in this place because you've received a spirit of adoption. I know some things about adoption because I have a family member right now going through the adoption process. And as they're bringing that child into their home, some things have happened. That, that child has had to have, by the court systems, the former relationship with the parents severed. The people who had authority over that child's life who was removed from the home no longer has relationships with the biological parents. The court has severed the relationship. That means there's a new father, and the new father has authority over that child. And that child is entering into all the privileges and all the responsibilities. What a great illustration of what it means to belong to Jesus this morning. Through Jesus, you've been adopted into the family of God. Just think back with me, maybe to like the 1920s or the 1930s in America, maybe you've seen movies of this or you're familiar with the movie Annie, uh, Orphan Annie, where in the 1930s, babies were left on the doorsteps of people's homes or on orphanages. Sometimes somebody couldn't raise a child and they would put them in a basket and just leave them on the doorstep, ring the doorbell and run away. And whoever opened up the door, reaching out, grabbing that basket and bringing that baby into their home. The picture of Jesus who has adopted us and admitted us into his family. And we have no rights whatsoever, but we've been taken in. And therefore, Paul says, you can call God your father because he's adopted you. But verse 15 doesn't stop there. He uses something much more powerful than just father. He says, you can say, Abba, father. Now, Abba is more than just father. Abba is actually an Aramaic term. You may not know this, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. He likely spoke Hebrew as well, probably didn't speak Greek, but many people who lived in the first century were multilingual, most commonly because Jesus was from Nazareth. The language of the Nazarenes was Aramaic. Abba is an Aramaic term, and it actually came from the households where children couldn't actually say the word when they were really little, learning to talk, two-year-old, three-year-old. They couldn't say the word father, so they did a babbling sound, and it came out, Abba, 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 Abba. They weren't able to say Papa, but Abba, and it became adopted as a term of endearment, and it was used within the family circle to represent intimacy. So Jesus constantly uses the term father, and it really ticked off the Pharisees and the scribes because they didn't think of God as their father, let alone as Abba. So Jesus uses the term father to speak of God, but when you find him in the Garden of Gethsemane, you find him doubling down. Abba, if it's possible, Abba. 
Let this cup pass from me. See, Abba is daddy. And you come to daddy when you are in great need. I have a need, daddy. Abba, I have a need. I, I need you. Jesus also appears to have used the term Abba when he taught the Lord's Prayer because he spoke Aramaic. Master, would you teach us how to pray like the other disciples pray? Well, when you pray, pray this way. Our Abba, who is in heaven, very likely used it that way. Dr. Jeremiah, who was a theologian, lived in the 40s, 50s, and 60s as a professor. Um, in 1959, he wrote this quote I wanted you to see. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives a share in this privilege to address God as Abba, a share in his position as the only begotten. He empowers us to speak to our heavenly Father literally as the small child speaks to his father in the same confident and childlike manner. This one word, Abba, if it is understood in its full sense, comprehends the whole message of the gospel. See, what God's doing is he's just reminding you he is intimately close to you. He's your daddy. This is a really personal term when you begin thinking of what God gave you the ability to do. I don't know if you've had the privilege like I have of being in hospital rooms multiple times when people are on the edge of death. Because of my role, I've been there. Gary is there commonly visiting with people in hospital rooms. And people are recovering from surgery or maybe within hours of their life being at an end, they're at a place of desperation. But in my own life, seven years ago, being in a recovery room when my daughter came out of major surgery and the anesthesia was wearing off, the first thing she started saying, it burned in my brain, Daddy, Daddy, where are you? Daddy, I need you. It's that sense that Paul is using that word here. Why? Because we're trying to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And we've been adopted into God's own family and we're being led by the Spirit and we're crying out, Abba, Daddy, I need you. In this moment, I need you now. So he goes on. See, these are all connected thoughts when you come to verse 16. And just saying, here's another way you can know. Verse 16, the Spirit himself, it testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You've reached a really decisive point here in this passage. This is a point where you may need to stop and say, where am I at in this issue? Unaided by the Holy Spirit, without the assistance of the Holy Spirit, you cannot testify to the reality of your standing before God. That's why there's fear associated with this issue, and people are not confident in saying, I'm not sure of this. They need the Holy Spirit to testify. But if you're a believer this morning, you're not flying solo here. The Holy Spirit, God says, testifies within you, and it speaks to your spirit that you actually belong. See, this is really weighty stuff, so I'm asking you right now, can you testify to how he does that for you? I don't mean you have to do it out loud, just internally examine yourself. Can you, with specificity, point to your life and say, I see that. I see the activity of the Holy Spirit witnessing to me. Here's one of the ways you can see it. Just let your eyes drift back up the page to verse 13 where we were at two weeks ago. And Paul says, if by the deeds of the flesh you are putting to death, if by the power of the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body, you will live. That that's one of those measuring rods. 
Can you point to the activity of the Spirit putting to death those things within you? Here's what a witness does, and I know you know this, but I I just need to bring it into the real world. A, A witness testifies. Three weeks ago, my brother was involved in a murder trial in Muskegon County. Uh, an individual who committed multiple murders on the west side of Michigan. And and they needed a a witness to come in because my brother is a car dealer and he sells thousands of Chrysler minivans. He's an expert on things like that. Well, the Secret Service agency, and I didn't know that they kept records on our cars, but apparently they do, Secret Service came to see my brother. And they said, we've got 60 thousand silver minivans that match the description of the vehicle that was used. We need you to help us identify which one was used in this particular crime. Somebody had captured on video a vehicle speeding away from a murder scene. When that vehicle sped away, the video got the, the side view of it, but they couldn't make out specifically how to narrow it down. And so they came to him and they said, how do, we, how do we bring this down and identify the vehicle within Muskegon County, which one this might belong to? Well, my brother, because he's an expert, looked at it and said, that particular vehicle in this image was made in Canada based on where the antenna was on the roof. And he said, based on the bumper and the trim work, I can tell you exactly where that car comes from. And they narrowed it down to within four vans within all of Muskegon County. Out of 60,000 in the state. My brother was an expert witness because he could testify to what he knew to be true in the exact same way the Holy Spirit does this thing. He's the expert. He knows God. He's witnessing. So I'm asking you, can you see evidence the Holy Spirit is testifying within your life and leading you to make war against the things of this world in your life? Do you hate your sin? Do you hate the desires of the flesh? If you are being led by the Holy Spirit to make war against the flesh, you are seeing evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Therefore, you know you're a child of God. So I'm asking you, do you hate sin this morning to the degree that you're making war on it? Verse 13 indicates this is an ongoing battle. It's not a one-time thing. It's present tense. And just to be really clear, we're not talking about you making war on someone else's sin, okay? Right? This is not you making war on somebody else's sin. This is not about you making war on culture. We're talking about your sin. Do you hate your sin? Let's deal with that first. Because Jesus said it's a really dangerous thing to try and do eye surgery on somebody else when you've got a log in your eye. Don't try and do eye surgery and pull out a speck of somebody else when you've got a big log blocking your vision, So do you hate your sin? Do you reject the things of this world? And do you long for the return of the king? Are you moving more towards Christ-likeness? This is why I said you might have to stop and pray right now, just in the quiet of your own seat. Request that the Holy Spirit would give you comfort in this issue. He wants to do that. And just ask him, Father, would you give me assurance Would you show me evidence that I'm your child? He wants to do this for you. Now, all these things lead to the logical conclusion of verse 17. Because in verse 17, he talks about the fact that as a result of our adoption, something happens for us. Verse 17 says this, and if, or the word because could be used there, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. <laughs> right away, we're, we're locking on that word inherit, because we're thinking, what do we inherit? What, what do we get? Well, here, I'm, tell, I'm telling you this morning, church, God is your inheritance. Amen? That's good. That's good. Scripture says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. I will welcome you. This is God speaking. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So we get God. That's one of our inheritance. But some people over the course of a weekend like this are going to be thinking, but I want stuff, Mark. I, I, I want things. That's our framework, right? We go there because we are materialistic people. I'm going to challenge you this morning to change your mindset because God says he has things in store for you that the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man all the things that God has prepared for you. So God goes way beyond the things that you think that you need so we get God, but another thing that we get is a glorified body. Some of you are like, yeah, I'll take that now. That'd be really great. A glorified body is your inheritance. So if you just let your eyes drift down the page and you look at verse 23, you see Paul talking about the redemption of the body, a perfection of your physical frame. We'll come back to that in just a moment. What I need to do is just camp out for a second on the word suffer. Because he said in verse 17, if we indeed suffer with him, that means there's no inheritance without suffering. Strange as it seems, one of the proofs or one of the evidences of your salvation comes through conflict. It comes through distress in your life. What does that mean? What does that look like for me? I'm living in the United States of America for crying out loud in 2017. What kind of stress am I going through? Well, these verses, understand, they are very intentional. They're in here for a reason, not in Romans by accident. It's really consistent with the things that Jesus said. Look with me on the screen at this one, Luke 9, 23. Jesus, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, obviously, you and I don't share in the redemption suffering. We don't have to go to a cross. Jesus isn't asking us to be executed by the Romans. He did that. He did that so we wouldn't have to. He died for our sins, so he's not asking us to die on a cross. But here's a reality in which we do share with him. We do share in conflict or opposition from the world. Some of you could give witness to that right now. Maybe in your job environment or your neighborhood or in your own home, you experience conflict because you walk for Jesus. You name him as your Savior. Well, 2 Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy when he's an older man, and he says this to the young man, Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, that makes sense. Because we're members of the same family, and as members of the same family, we share in the same trials, as well as the benefits. See, the two go hand in hand. So if you have your Bible open and you have a way to highlight, you might want to circle the word if, because the word if in verse 17, it's better rendered because. It's not a possibility. It's an actuality. Because you are a child of God, you're going to suffer. 
So there's two quick aspects to this, and one is much bigger deal that I want to camp on, especially next week. But the first aspect to this suffering is, is found if we understand this world system. If indeed we suffer with him, verse 17 says, this world system is under the reign of Satan. Therefore, because it's under the reign of Satan, it despises God. Therefore, it despises the people of God. So it is inevitable that whether persecution comes in the form of martyrdom and you have to die for your faith, or it comes in the form of verbal abuse, it's going to happen according to Scripture. It's a guarantee. No believer is exempt from it. If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. So when we suffer mockery and when we suffer scorn or ridicule, any form of persecution because of Jesus, it's proof you truly belong to him. Why does God let us go through that? Well, understand suffering is a central part of maturity in Jesus Christ. God allows it. Yeah, and I actually said that. God allows suffering. If he's sovereign and he's in control of everything, there's nothing that catches him by surprise. God allows suffering to come into our life for a reason, and it's in varying degrees. It looks different in your life than it looks in mine. Here's the reason he allows it, to drive a believer in Jesus into deeper dependence on him. Because this is all about relationship. And suffering, persecution, it takes you to a place where you're more and more dependent upon God. To take a stand for Jesus is to guarantee some kind of rejection. This is John 15, 18, Jesus speaking. He said it this way, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, just as an aside, one of the ways I know God's word to be true is verses like that. God authenticates the reality of his word and the things that he says true because every time I go through ridicule or persecution or you go through it, it's merely evidence of the fallenness of this planet. God said this planet is consumed with sin. It's fallen. Therefore, we throw stones at each other. And if you belong to Jesus, you're going to really feel it. So just balance it this way. People don't mock individuals who believe in Buddha People don't mock individuals who believe in Islam, but they mock Christians. God said it's going to be that way. His word is authenticated and validated. He said, if the world hates you, it's hated me first. You belong to me. You're going to face it. It's going to happen to you. So with that thought in mind, that's the first aspect of suffering. I want to come into the second one. But whatever rejection, whatever loss, whatever imprisonment you might face, and maybe you didn't know this, but there's individuals in our church who have gone to prison for their belief in Jesus, not here in this country, but in another country, where they faced torture for their relationship with Christ. Whether you face that or not, those things that you face are nothing compared to what is gained in your inheritance on the other side. Scripture promises us in 2 Corinthians, it's merely producing for you an eternal weight of glory. Amen? It is. It's doing that for you, church. So there's another aspect to this truth of suffering. 
And we're going to spend a lot more time on it next week, but I want to flesh it out with you just a little bit here this morning. I need a volunteer to read a passage of Scripture for me. One verse, and you're going to have to stand up and read it really loud for everybody. 1 John 3, 2. Do I have one person that would do that for us? And you know I'm just going to stare at you until somebody volunteers, right? Okay, go ahead, Craig. Oh, that's Chris, sorry. <laughs> Craig is his brother. Read that last sentence one more time, real loud. <laughs> you need the old man glasses, don't you? <laughs> Go ahead and read it real loud. We shall be like him. Thank you very much for reading that. We shall be like him. Does God lie, church? God does not lie. We shall be like him, the perfect son of God. We shall be like him because of Jesus, because he adopted you. One day, you're going to be just like him, and we're going to talk about that a lot next week, like the perfect son of God, and nothing can stop it. Nothing on this planet or in the universe can stop that reality. Just hear me on this. There are stages to salvation. The the first stage is the regeneration. The first time you ever heard about Jesus and it clicked with you and it made sense. Yeah, he died for my sins. I can be forgiven. There's a regeneration that took place, a renewing of your mind, Scripture says. And that led to justification. Because you believed in Jesus Christ, God justified you. And as a result of justification, you're moved into the process of sanctification by which God is purifying you and making you more like the image of Christ. And sanctification leads to glorification. You can identify each of those stages, but you cannot separate them. They are linked together. In other words, none of them exist without the others. They are intricately woven into the fabric of God's perfect plan Consequently, there will never be justification without glorification. Do you believe that you've been forgiven of your sins this morning? Okay. If you believe that you've been forgiven, you're justified. And if you're justified, therefore, you're going to be glorified. God doesn't stop the process. Here's an example of that. Romans 8.30. Whom God predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. See, in God's economy, these are perfectly, seamlessly woven together. Justification, your forgiveness of sin, it is only the beginning of your salvation. Glorification is its completion. And once God has begun it, he will not stop it. And no power in the universe can stop it. Amen? It can't be stopped. That's why you find Paul writing things like in Philippians. I am confident. I am convinced. I know that I know that I know of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you, he will complete it. He's going to perfect it. 
when? In the day of Christ Jesus, when you're glorified. And he also writes in Romans 8, 38, see, this is where it's building to that climax, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <sighs> i got to take a breath. This is going to feel like I'm getting off in the weeds, but it'll take two minutes and just hear me. It's linked to what we're talking about. You daughters of Eve and you sons of Adam, Created in the image of God. But Adam and Eve, the progenitors of the human race, the first two people, created so perfectly in the image of God that they reflect the glory of God. No sin whatsoever, none, radiating somehow, and Scripture doesn't explain it, but we understand they radiate the glory of God. But by disobeying God, not only lost their innocence, but we lost our glory. Whatever it was that God had given to us is gone. And for that reason, all mankind now falls short of the glory of God. That's why Paul writes Romans 3.23, we've all sinned, we're short of the glory of God, we don't have it anymore, we don't measure up. And fallen man, even if they're not believers, they know they're lacking because they strive and work and wrestle trying to get glory back, wanting self-esteem, wanting self-worth. And there's an obsession today, and I'm sure it was true 2,000 years ago, with this desire to be esteemed, to be identified, to be elevated. Why? Because we lost it. It's not there. We're devoid of it. John MacArthur, when he was reading this very same passage that you're reading this morning, wrote this quote. I wanted you to see it. He said it far more eloquently than I can. The ultimate purpose of salvation is to forgive and to cleanse us of our sin and to restore us to God's glory and thereby bring to him still greater glory through the working of that sovereign act of grace. The glory that believers are destined to receive through Jesus will far surpass the glory man had before the fall because perfection far exceeds innocence. So verse 17 says, and if, and because new hope, because you're believers in Jesus, if children, your heirs also, so children of God this morning, what are you going to inherit What's waiting for you? Well, for sure, God, we know we get God. And I told you we'd come back to this glorified body component. I'm going to do that with you in great detail next week. But hear this. A present reality is that if we keep this passage in context, I said text has to be kept in context. When he says we suffer the effects of the fall, in verses 18 through 23, there's another aspect to the suffering that's going on. So Paul launches when he gets to verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy with the glory to be revealed, revealed to us. And he gets to verse 23 and he says, this suffering that's groaning that's going on, the redemption of my body, I'm just waiting for it. God, release me from this suffering there's a suffering that's going on that goes beyond persecution. There's a suffering of the effects of the fall and all the accompanying effects of it. You're dealing with the broken heart this morning of a broken relationship. You're dealing with the brokenness of your body. 
There's a degree of suffering that you understand. And for whatever reason, God has allowed it to varying degrees to drive us deeper into relationship and dependence upon him. So one of the things I know as a result of coming out of the suffering and the inheritance that's waiting for us is you get a glorified body. That is part of your inheritance, the perfection of your new frame. I just want you to chew on that for the next six days before you come back next week when we talk about what that really looks like as far as Scripture reveals. Here's what I know. I know the value of an inheritance is completely dependent upon the wealth of the one who bestows the inheritance. When my mom and dad passed away, there was an inheritance for each of myself and my siblings, the five of us, and their their wealth was divided up among us besides what they wanted to give to their church, spread out among us. The value of an inheritance is determined by the worth of the one who bestows it. New hope? Your inheritance is from the owner of the universe. God owns everything. And he's not only your source, but he is your inheritance. Look at me one more time on the screen. Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Oh, that is good. We get God, and we get all these other things that are waiting for us. God's resources are limitless, and so your inheritance is limitless. One day, all this stuff is going to burn. It's going to disappear. That's a gentle way of saying it. Scripture actually says it's going to melt. The heavens are going to roll up like a scroll. It's just going to be an explosion. Everything is going to be gone. Why? Because this earth, it's corrupt. It's defiled. So God says he's making a new earth because this one's completely defiled. However, child of God believer in Jesus, one day you're going to inherit, according to Scripture, 1 Peter 1, 4, something that's undefiled. You will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it's reserved for you in heaven. See, a Christian not living with a sense of expectancy of the second coming of Jesus, they're too tied to earth too tied to the things of this planet. Yeah, God's given you a life here and you've got to live it out to its fullest. But live with a sense of expectancy. He's coming again, amen? There's a plan here. God's got a plan to redeem. So if you want application out of this, I'm going to give you application to carry out the door with you. Jesus spoke to this very issue. And you can chew on this this week. This is his words. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Okay. Here's how I'm going to pray for you this morning. I'm going to ask that you would join me in that, that you would not forget whatever God pressed on your heart about during this morning. Join me in that. 
Father, you have moved in ways that we probably can't explain, but each of us felt a nudge in some way from you. Help us to be extraordinarily sensitive to that. Because we're going to leave here and get in cars, and some will turn on football games, and some will go to dinner, and we will be tempted to forget about the things that you want us to respond to. Whatever that requires of us right now, Father, I pray that you would move us to do that. And allow us to not forget, but to remember the way that you have moved and have called us to a higher standard. We pray for this in the matchless name of the one who bought us at great price, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.